Welcome to Mysteries, Myths, and More. I'm your narrator, Joyce Keller Walsh. My intention is to use this podcast to tell a story each month, sometimes fiction, sometimes not, that I hope you'll find interesting, engaging, and provocative. Welcome to Episode 14, The World of Peter Wong. I'm going to read an article that I wrote about a memorable encounter in my life with a young man named Peter Wong. The fact that I wrote it 30 years ago will be made clear at the end of this podcast. Get out of the way, someone shouted. Peter's coming. Without knowing exactly what that meant, I scrambled off the track onto the grassy sidelines, just as a determined young man in an electric wheelchair whizzed by. That is my first and lasting image of Peter Wong. One hand on the control box of his wheelchair, the other poised somewhere in midair, a fixed look in his eyes at the curve ahead, sweating in his t-shirt on the sunniest, hottest day in the history of track jamboree. I didn't actually get to meet Peter that day, although I certainly felt I'd encountered him. Only later did I learn who he was. I have since concluded that I was well advised to get out of his path. An alumnus of Brayton High School, Peter, now 27, that was back in 1988, returns faithfully each year for track jamboree, an all-day marathon at Massachusetts Hospital School, to raise funds for the senior class trip that year to Disney World. As its name suggests, MHS combines a hospital, school, Brayton High, and residence for physically disabled youngsters. I happened to be working at MHS in 1987 when I attended my first track jamboree. My awe at the kids competing in this event, on crutches and in manual or electric wheelchairs, steadily rose with the soaring temperature, which hit over 90 degrees that day. As any serious athlete, Peter always prepares for the race, bringing an extra wheelchair, spare parts, his own pit crew, including the head of the psychology department at MHS, Dr. Casey Dorman. Dr. Dorman's duties involved lifting Peter from one chair to the other between breaks so that one chair would always be charging its battery, helping repair any minor mechanical damage to the chair, usually at Peter's direction, and helping to feed and care for the racer during the 12-hour competition. Clearly, Peter's ambition was to win. In previous years, he consistently finished first in the electric wheelchair category, for most miles raced and the fastest time. Everyone expected him to do it again, but this year he would only place second. Peter miscalculated the length of his lead and took time out to catch the final dramatic minutes of the fiercely fought Celtics-Lakers game. His love of sports cost him the trophy. No matter, Peter has a shelf full of trophies and more, no doubt, to come. Many are from track jamboree, but one that he especially prizes is from the cerebral palsy Olympics. Cerebral palsy is what Peter has. Before working at the hospital school, CP was something I had heard about but not really learned about. Just imagine, I was instructed, that you are above average intelligence. <laughs> imagine. Then also imagine that your speech is impaired so that it is difficult to make yourself understood and you can't write. In fact, can't fully control your hand or arm movements. And you need a personal care assistant to help feed you, bathe you, clothe you, lift you, etc. And 
you are dependent on a mechanical device for locomotion. Consider for a moment what your life would be like. How well do you suppose you would do, day in and day out, coping with your situation? Do you think you would be angry, depressed, or frustrated? If you would, you'd probably be like most of us who take our abilities too much for granted. But the one person you would not be like is Peter Wong. One of the great tragedies of cerebral palsy is that it imprisons an often normal, sometimes above normal, intelligence in a body that will not obey the usual commands of the brain to control movement. This results from damage to certain areas of the brain in early life, usually during gestation or at birth, where the cause is suspected to be oxygen deficiency, or sometimes later on as a consequence of head injury. While CP is not contagious, progressive, or terminal, Approximately 700,000 Americans are affected by it to some degree. It is, most physicians agree, a preventable condition. Yet some 10,000 infants are born each year with central nervous system disorders, leading to CP, and another 2,000 children per year acquire it as a result of head injuries. The symptoms of CP vary widely depending on the severity and location of the brain damage. Physical symptoms are often the first to be spotted, Difficulty in muscle control, in particular. Poor coordination, spasms and seizures. Difficulty in sucking and sometimes problems in hearing and seeing. Behavioral symptoms may be less noticeable until they become extreme, including irritability, inability to concentrate, or emotional problems. Types of CP vary, with spastic cerebral palsy being the most common, characterized by tense and involuntary muscle contractions. Peters is principally of the athetoid type, with relatively constant, poorly controlled movements of limbs and head. Frequent motions of his body give the impression that he is tossed about with bursts of kinetic energy. One thinks of sunspots, and it is oddly fitting. Peter most likely was born with cerebral palsy. He never entered the walking stage. For years, his mother carried him up and down the three flights of stairs in their apartment in Chinatown. Wherever she went, he went. And so it continued until the time when Peter became a little too big, a little too heavy for his mother to lift. Peter's family knew he had cerebral palsy. They also knew he was bright and determined. His older sister remembers that, even as a child, quote, Peter would make things happen for himself. He always attempted to communicate, and he had a natural curiosity. Equally important, says Linda, he had a happy disposition. Everybody loved him and took an interest in him, she says. Peter's family kept him at home as long as they could, but by age four they had to acknowledge he needed education, constant medical attention, and specialized training to cope with his disability. After much soul-searching, they admitted him to Lakeville Hospital, a state residential facility where Peter lived for the next eight years. By the way, that facility is now long unused and awaiting demolition. Linda believes that his experience at Lakeville motivated Peter. She thinks he recognized the, for the first time the contrast between trying and not trying when he saw some children who seemed not to want to help themselves. She says that was the moment when Peter made the decision never to be that way himself. Peter's memories of the hospital are less philosophical. On the one hand, he remembers, quote, crying a lot, unquote, when he first arrived. On the other, he recalls, quote, a couple of nurses who spoiled me. He says this with obvious glee. One thing for certain, it was in Lakeville 
that Peter's entrepreneurial streak surfaced. Taking advantage of opportunity, his first business was recycling bottles and cans in the hospital. He progressed to other enterprises, from selling pencils to making and selling ceramics, skillfully turning hospital staff into his clientele. Lakeville Hospital was not designed for long-term care for an adolescent such as Peter, however, and at age 12, he was transferred to then Bay State Rehabilitation Hospital. Bay State, newly built at the time, offered nursing care to patients who required permanent institutionalization. Because of the severity of Peter's condition, it was assumed he would always need to be in a sheltered environment. But good luck and a good friend changed his world. During the first year he lived at Bay State, a young high school graduate volunteered as a personal care assistant at the facility, and Peter was assigned to her. Or vice versa, Kathy says Riley. She was only 17 herself, but Peter was to be her kid. She didn't know very much about caring for someone with CP, she admits. She wasn't sure how much she should do for him or how much he should do for himself. Maybe it was because she didn't know about limitations that Kathy encouraged Peter to take risks, whether it was learning to do some basic chores for himself or chancing the embarrassment of going out to dinner. Kathy would take him to the movies, shopping, restaurants. She wanted Peter to be comfortable in public, comfortable enough to enjoy a meal out, even though his companion would have to feed him. Sometimes all the staring would finally bother Peter and his sense of humor would take over. He would pretend, as Kathy describes it, to be, quote, a poor little retarded spastic Chinese kid, unquote, and make a spectacle of himself, then laugh about it later with her. There were other times, too, that Peter pretended to be spastic, especially when the nurses were nearby and he could lift up their skirts with a wayward arm. They soon took to wearing slacks around him. Although Kathy soon went off to college, she and Peter developed a true friendship. In some ways, they grew up together. Their joint goal was for Peter to have normal activities outside an institutional life, and they both succeeded. For Kathy's 21st birthday, Peter surprised her with dinner at Chateau de Ville from his earnings selling donuts and pencils. Peter's self-confidence had grown to where he wanted more independence. While at Bay State, he heard of another facility which seemed to offer that opportunity. Perhaps even without putting a name to it, independence had become Peter's goal. How far towards it could he travel? He had to find out. What especially interested Peter about the Massachusetts Hospital School was the school. He desperately wanted to go to school. While he had long since convinced the professionals that he wasn't mentally challenged, Peter's ability to benefit from an education was still in doubt. His particular brain damage is such that it obstructs him from being able to read or write, even though he comprehends the spoken word, English or Chinese, perfectly well. How could he do math if he couldn't work through the problems? How could he pass the literature requirements? No one could envision how to educate a youth as disabled as Peter. And what was the point, anyway? Peter was well aware of his predicament and knew he needed powerful support for his application for admission to MHS. Because it is a state facility, he discovered that his best chance would be to convince an influential politician to assist him. And so, with the help of his friends, Peter began a letter-writing campaign. One by one, he wrote to Massachusetts politicians and one by one they came to his aid, including Senator Edward Kennedy. Ultimately, 
persistently, he was granted admission to the Massachusetts Hospital School, and Peter learned a lesson he has never forgotten. In 1977, Peter began classes in the Brayton School. He lived on campus with over 100 other patients and students who were physically compromised. Most of his classmates were in their teens, and most were in wheelchairs. Many of them, like himself, had cerebral palsy. Some had muscular dystrophy or spina bifida or were quadriplegics from a paralyzing accident. They were all there to learn to do anything they possibly could academically, vocationally, socially, and in every other way. It might take them a little longer to complete the same tasks as their physically able counterparts, but they got them done, and that's what counted. Monday through Friday, they attended classes. Physical therapy, occupational therapy, counseling, dental appointments, and medical treatments were incorporated into the school day. After school, they would play sports. Wheelchair basketball, track, and hockey were great favorites, along with swimming and bowling. Or they might go on a local excursion or simply stay in their cottage living rooms to do homework and watch TV. They put on plays and concerts, had student council elections, went to the prom, and, in short, did most of what other high school students their age were doing. On weekends, the students would go home if they were able or stay on campus where weekend activities were always scheduled, sightseeing trips, museums, track meets, etc. At last, Peter was beginning to feel just like any other teenager. Peter loved the Mass Hospital School, and the feeling was mutual. Ask any staff member at MHS, be it teacher or healthcare professional, what Peter was like when he was there, you are likely to get the unanimous response. He was really special. Even in an environment that for 80 years had witnessed special youngsters accomplishing special things, Peter was exceptional. For one thing, Peter was able to pass all of his courses relying solely on memory. Just think of having to solve every math problem, addition, multiplication, subtraction, division, fractions, and algebra in your head without writing anything down. Despite all, Peter graduated in 1982 with an accredited diploma from Brayton High School, and he wears his class ring with justifiable pride. For another thing, Peter was viewed as someone who would fight hard for what he wanted. Besides his cheerful attitude, his enterprise, and self-reliance, it is that quality of not giving up which his associates admire. Although not prone to be litigious, Peter has recognized the necessity of legal action on certain occasions. He recently experienced a humiliating rejection from a credit union in which he had a savings account but which denied him a loan application because of his CP. Reputedly, the loan officer commented that he, quote, would not let a drunk off the street apply either, unquote. And that, supposedly, was that. But the credit union hadn't reckoned on Peter Wong. Just by chance, maybe, Peter has a good friend who has a general law practice with a specialty in cases of discrimination against the disabled. Although William S. Patsos, Jr., attorney at law, hadn't seen much of Peter since Bill had been a former teacher at MHS, coincidentally they met each other at a Celtics game shortly after the incident with the credit union. Peter usually went to the home games, where he had to sit in a special wheelchair section. Bill saw Peter, and they chatted and passed some pleasantries. Peter didn't mention the credit union, but the following Monday morning, Bill received a call from Peter. I've got a case for you, Peter informed him. What took you so long, replied Bill imperturbably. After nearly two years, the case was settled out of court. 
Peter had since applied for and received a loan from another banking institution. It took him four tries, but he prevailed. Many resources are still lacking for people with disabilities, observes Bill Patsos. Sometimes it's just a matter of having a place to go to ask questions or get advice on how to get through the bureaucracy. Sometimes, he adds sadly, the problems are more immediate. He cites incidents of victimization of disabled individuals, sometimes by their own personal care assistance. PCAs come in assorted shapes, sizes, and personalities. There are no certification programs or specific employment and screening agencies to help in hiring a PCA. This was, of course, 30 years ago. Most personal care assistants are located through help-wanted advertisements. The disabled employer is responsible for interviewing, reference-checking, and hiring, as well as maintaining records of employment. That part, says Peter, can be a real pain. Social Security pays the allotment to the disabled person who, in turn, pays the PCA according to the hours worked. Pay is low and choices are limited. In all, however, Peter's experience with PCAs has been more positive than negative. His worst episode was with a PCA who forged a check on him. But his best was with a PCA who, quote, really paid attention to me, unquote, and has become a lifelong friend. Getting his first apartment with a live-in PCA was a major victory for Peter. To qualify to live independently and receive the Social Security allotment to pay a personal care assistant, a disabled person has to be certified as being able to handle money and manage a budget. To achieve this, Peter applied to the Boston Center for Independent Living to go through a seven-month training program. There, too, he came up against a reluctance to admit him to the program. The center was uncertain whether Peter would be capable of living on his own with a PCA. Once again, Peter became his own advocate and convinced them he could. He successfully completed the program, moved into his first apartment. Accessible apartments for disabled tenants were difficult to find. Peter was waitlisted for a year for his current Park Square apartment, and when asked what recommendation he would make on behalf of disabled individuals, without hesitation he said, quote, build more accessible housing, unquote. Employment is the other issue that vitally concerns Peter, but employment is a complex issue for individuals receiving disability benefits because too high a salary may jeopardize some needed benefits, such as subsidized rent or Medicaid. According to one knowledgeable social worker, the probability is slim that a disability-qualified person will earn enough to adequately compensate for any lost benefits. The insurance system is very convoluted, and she concedes, quote, people tear their hair out trying to understand it, unquote. While a possible loss of benefits is one employment consideration, there are a range of other problems a disabled person faces in employment, including job accessibility, adaptations to the worksite, special equipment, and transportation, not to mention the difficulty of being hired in the first place. Quote, in general, the picture for individuals as disabled as Peter is still pretty bleak, unquote, says Denise Oliveira, director of Project I, E-Y-E. Project I, Enabling Youth for Employment, is a joint program of the Massachusetts Hospital School and Enable, Incorporated, a nonprofit organization providing services to the disabled. While new technologies have made vast improvements in the employability of disabled people, those who are both physically limited and speech limited 
have the least prospects. Therefore, Peter is unemployed, right? Wrong. True to form, Peter has found a paying job. While it is only summer employment right now, who knows what the future will bring? Last year, a new summer camp opened up behind the suburban Burlington campus of Northeastern University. Camp for Kids East is sponsored by the Association for the Support of Human Services, Incorporated, and is one of several camps established to integrate able-bodied children with physically and developmentally disabled children. Peter learned about the camp and applied there as a volunteer. When I spoke with the camp director, David Feldman Hall, he confessed to being skeptical at first about taking Peter on, even as a volunteer. For one thing, he didn't think Peter could negotiate the transportation problem. For Peter to get from Boston to Burlington each day, he would have to leave his apartment at 6.45 a.m., take a subway to Alwife Station and an MBTA bus to the closest stop, then wheel his way up the bumpy dirt road to arrive at his job by 8 o'clock. Reverse the process to go home. Rain or shine. Improbable as it seemed, the director decided to try Peter out and see how he would do. Peter did just fine, thank you, and was swiftly offered a paying position as a counselor. Quote, Peter sure educated us, said Feldman Hall. He is one tough son of a bitch. The morning I visited Peter at the camp, he was acting as assistant group leader for an older group of eight preteens. One task of Peter's group was to put together tree limbs to make a teepee. A decision had to be made where to place the opening. The issue was debated with all the youngsters being asked their opinion. The campers finally agreed on a place for the opening to the teepee. Peter waited until the discussion was concluded, then asked the critical question, What about a wheelchair? Immediately, the children's eyes went wide. Yes, they clamored. None of them had thought about it. But they had chosen a place that was too rocky and too small. Unanimously, they chose a new entrance to the teepee with a side and a size that could accommodate those in their group who were in wheelchairs. Peter will return to camp as a counselor again this summer. He's a blessing, said Feldman Hall. For all his accomplishments, and as one of the nominees, Peter was an invited guest at the first annual Academy Awards for the Handicapped in January of 1988, sponsored by Heaven's Children. Despite a case of flu, Peter attended the dinner and ceremony held at the Copley Marriott Hotel to present awards to 15 national honorees. He was thrilled to be part of such a visible recognition of the abilities of disabled people. Quote, all we need, reflects Peter, is a chance to prove ourselves, unquote. His advice to anyone who is disabled is, quote, don't give up, keep on fighting, unquote. With all his achievements, a high school diploma, independence, employment, travel, he's been to Florida and Las Vegas and is contemplating a trip to Taiwan, there is still one area in which Peter has not been victorious. Not yet, that is. Peter's heartfelt goal is to meet a woman with whom he could marry and begin a family. In repose, Peter's features are attractive. His intelligence and humor make him a delightful companion. But the cerebral palsy thwarts him. While he has been on occasional dates, Peter laments the difficulty of finding opportunities to socialize. Quote, I think it would be easier if I were a woman, unquote, he analyzes. Lots of women who have handicaps have relationships with men, but seldom the reverse. 
I've tried everything, he says pensively. Then suddenly his face brightens up and he laughs. I could write a book about it, he confides. And what would its title be? He thinks for a minute, then replies, Why can't a man with a disability have a relationship with a woman? It's a good title, he decides. Maybe he'll actually write the book. When I considered what I would do with Podcast 14, I began looking through my files and found the piece I just read to you. I wondered if Peter was still alive. He'd be in his mid-fifties now. Given all the afflictions, someone with the severity of cerebral palsy that Peter had, I didn't know what to expect. I googled his name, fearing I might find an obituary. But instead, I found an interview in 2013 that a Boston TV reporter named Maria Stefanos conducted with Peter. She mentions that Peter was helping out with a course called Disability at Stonehill College. That's disability with a question mark. The question mark is essential. The course was taught by Professor Warren Dolan, who was a very close friend of Peter's. So I emailed Professor Dolan at Stonehill, asking, with trepidation, is Peter still alive? The answer was a decided yes. And we went on from there to an invitation to both Peter and Warren to be on my May 2020 podcast, episode 15. I hope you'll come back to listen. If you like this podcast, please download and subscribe. It's free, and you'll find it on your favorite directories such as Apple, Google, Stitcher, TuneIn, and more. To learn more about me and my books, go to JoyceWalsh.com.